0: Good
1: afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer squad. And as we began reporting last week, the Ford government announced... It's planned to divert more surgeries to publicly funded private clinics. The plan is to relieve the backlog, and it will start with cataract surgeries, which have one of the longest wait times. Initially, this plan will add 14,000 additional cataract procedures in Windsor, Kitchener-Waterloo, and Ottawa. Ontario is also investing more than $18 million in existing se- centers to cover more MRI and CT scans. Now, a lot of these procedures are already provided this way, but there are big concerns, notably that these clinics will poach staff, especially nurses from hospitals, which will make those wait times worse. Also, there are already a lot of complaints about upselling patients who get care in these settings. Also, very sad news this weekend about the death of former Lieutenant Governor David Onley, Let's begin there. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free one 866 740 And now let's go to Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and Anthony Quinn, Chief Community Officer at CARP. Hey, guys. Thanks for joining us. Good morning,
2: Libby. Good morning, Libby.
1: Well, this was very sad news. Of course, uh, we go back a long way with David Onley. Uh, Moses hired him for TV in the 80s, and I know I worked with him for quite a few years And he was just a lovely guy, and to my mind, also one of the few people you see who really does not change when they get to a very lofty position. And uh, to me, that's a real litmus test. And and he was uh, always an advocate for people with disabilities, and that never wavered.
2: Well, Libby, I was a big admirer of David Onley, uh, and I was a fan of City TV news and ended up as an employee like you at at City. And you're right, David was the kind of person that what you saw on television was the gentleman you saw in person. And even in those loftier positions beyond a TV news reporter, which was quite lofty from my point of view, Mm -hmm. to lieutenant governor, again, maintained that same character, a very gentle man. A man of faith and someone who I was glad to say that I knew. I knew David and David knew me.
1: Yeah, he was uh, uh, somebody who lived their values, Bill. And it was also, you know, uh, sometimes he was a man of faith. He was really quite religious. And uh, it's very different from most of the people you encounter in the television biz, to say the least, or in the news business altogether. And um, he was also not at all judgmental about that um and he had a lovely sense of humor
3: yeah i didn't know him personally but i certainly knew of him and heard about him often and and heard about him through people uh, uh like anthony and and uh, moses who respected him uh, greatly what what i always uh, noticed was that his his care always went beyond uh what his current purview uh, was uh, and with regard to his uh, advocacy around uh, accessibility he always uh, you know i think one of the things he often said was that uh, you know just don't think of this for yourself think of it for uh, uh, for your parents and older people or people around you that was uh, uh, he was always reminding us of that
1: uh, Anthony, I think uh, you know more about the cause of death than than I do
2: I, I had heard David's son on, on another radio station talking that David had uh, a brain surgery a number of years ago and hadn't fully recovered and the, the news in the hospital was that many of his uh, bodily uh, functions, uh, the heart, liver, kidneys started to give out and he was uh, slowly uh, fading over the last many days
1: anyway very sad and and you know these days 72 is just yeah. not that old
2: That's but a, but a lifetime of of health conditions obviously yeah. uh, being one of the last people in, he told me he was one of the last children in canada to be diagnosed with polio uh, at age three and and lived a life uh, uh suffering with the the, the results of, of polio post-polio post-polio syndrome, post-polio syndrome.
1: Yeah, and, and made a lot of that life, and, uh, you know, um, I think he had a good life.
2: Well, I, I didn't see any uh, negative effects of, of his condition when I saw him working at, at City Pulse or, or in his role as a lieutenant governor. He was actually, I think, uh, admirable in the way he overcame those things and didn't let them get in the way of any of his, his, his career
1: aspirations. Yeah. Anyway, a great guy. Yeah, we'll miss him. We'll miss him. Uh, Moving along to the big news today, and that is uh, about the first part of the plan to divert some of surgeries from hospitals to some of these private clinics. And uh, first of all, I have to express, express my frustration at the inability to get basic information uh, from government or quasi-government, uh, you know, in a reasonable timeline. And my first thought, now, I, I noticed that none of these extra cataract surgeries are going to be in Toronto. And I'm racking my brains. I know a lot of people who've had cataract surgery. I, I can't think of a single one here in Toronto who had one in a hospital. They're already done in these private clinics.
2: I'm not certain where all of the cataract surgeries are done, but they've indicated that Windsor, Kitchener, Waterloo, and Ottawa are the places where there are the highest need right now. So that likely makes sense to focus there to start with with more uh, investment coming later on.
1: Well, yeah, uh, but uh, possibly the need is there because there already aren't uh, as many of these clinics Uh, You know, again, uh, you know, it's totally anecdotal. It's not scientific. I tried to find out, and we are still trying to find out how many current cataract surgeries are, are done in these private clinics. But of the people that I know, and quite a few have had cataract surgery, they're always in a private clinic. And on the one hand, the advantage, I think, is that these clinics are already here. Like we heard a lot of rumors and they may come to pass later about bringing in Americans, uh, with surgical clinics, which really makes me nervous. But these clinics are here and the, the doctors there, like that's all they do. So that's good. But, um, on the other hand, there have been lots of complaints about being upsold in those clinics. And, and I think sometimes very aggressively.
3: That's certainly, uh, you know, the consumer protection. Uh, concern around this whole issue is one that really needs to be looked at and and investigated uh, uh, separately. Uh, it's so so easy for people to feel vulnerable uh, when they're in that situation, and and what do they base the decision on? They're talking to someone who's supposed to be the expert in that area, who's advising that they should they should have something that is not is not covered. The real question is uh, why is the government not covering the best available uh, uh to the the people who who need it and if it's not the best available if they're being uh, upsold then why uh and why why is it not covered that's the that's the key question
1: well um you know i guess the government thought is that it can't i mean there's more things to cover every day. It can't have the Cadillac that uh, you're going to perhaps get a Toyota. So... I, don't, I mean, I but, don't. But if I don't you're, know. If you're
3: being told you won't have uh, you won't have as good eyesight if you don't uh, if you don't do what you're being suggested to do, then
1: well, what then, did you get, Bill, oh, I, in the hospital? You had your cataracts.
3: I did, and I, and I in the hospital, and and I got the the uh, uh, the best that was available at that. And uh, you paid? at that time. And, uh, and did you pay extra? No, no, not 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 in Nova Scotia. I didn't pay. No, I did not pay extra. Are,
1: are you sure that what you got is uh, the equivalent of what is not covered here?
3: No, I don't okay, know because, well, I, because I, I, I'm, I'm talking some some years ago. But I but I, I, I do know that people need to have that the confidence. Uh, people in Ontario need to have the confidence that what they're getting will solve their problem. And if it and if it won't. Uh, then the government has to explain why it won't uh, cover it, and money uh, money is a is an issue. But uh, uh, giving giving something that isn't of quality uh, just because it can't be afforded is not a good excuse.
1: Okay, Bill. So another thing we have to explore is whether, since you got your cataract surgery in a hospital, they probably did not carry the Cadillac model. That's what I would think. Yeah. Um so probably you got what's on offer here, but we need to check into that to see if that is well, in fact the case.
3: That's what we don't know. We don't know I mean, what the difference I, is.
1: I, I bought glasses, right? And I could get, Glasses, and as you could, with certain kind of lenses that are perfectly good, or I could pay an extra few hundred dollars for the super duper—I forget Xylus, Zeiss, whatever they were—and I can afford it, so I did. The, but
2: the yeah. eye physicians of Ontario—they they state that these, the Ontario pays for all of the insured services that are medically necessary, so you can improve your eyesight through getting the basic. Treatment and everything else is not funded by the province. That's not considered medically necessary. So I think Bill's point is that uh, medically necessary should should notionally be the best available and not the the lowest the lowest level.
1: Right. right. Uh, okay, but uh, you know that that doesn't cut to the issue of upselling. Or in the case with some of, you know, the Schuldice Clinic, right, the surgery is covered, but you've got to stay overnight? Well, you've got to cough up for that.
2: Yeah, you're not getting out of there without without an out-of-pocket bill. Right. But, but I took away from, from the Premier's discussion this morning was he said the status quo is not acceptable. And I think Ontarians understand that. And that's something that CARP has been saying for how long, uh, Bill. But i'm I'm glad to see that they're taking some steps. They've said that they will release new legislation in February and we'll have a chance to see what those details are and and hold them accountable uh, based on that legislation. But I think we all understand that the wait lists are too long. Uh, and especially our demographic, the the promises of increases to MRIs and hip knee and foot surgeries is something that's long overdue and
1: and long been demanded. Okay. Yes. Let me, here's another concern. And in our next segment, we will talk about the concerns is the oversight of the clinics. And like I said, I would have no hesitation going to a private clinic for my cataracts, but I used to go to a private clinic, community clinic for my mammograms and they missed my breast cancer. And it wasn't like a tiny little breast cancer discovered at an early age, Uh, a few weeks, literally a few weeks after they told me everything was fine and don't worry, I found a great big lump. And the doctors I eventually went to, I I got hold of all my films and they saw it there. So uh, I'm concerned about the level of quality control. And I mean, just to bring up another example when it comes to nursing homes, well, some of them are great and some of them are horrific. And I don't know that there are enough people keeping tabs.
3: No. Uh, you're you're right, and that was exactly the comparison that came to mind uh, uh, when you talked about your experience because uh, although we know there are regulations we don't know how the inspections happen we still don't uh, uh, we have no idea of how often they're inspected, who does the quality uh, who does the quality uh, control and from the examples we keep hearing like yours uh it's not it's not well done it's not consistent uh, there's no oversight they're self regulated and self-regulated almost always leads to issues
1: well exactly
2: it, but the the surgeon or the radiologist for example who may have looked at your film that, that's going to be a physician under the the rubric of the cpso in ontario and and there's a governing body over
0: yeah over there. good
1: luck with that uh, all i can say is is good luck with that um you know uh i decided not to make a formal complaint because basically this was my perception. If a doctor is investigated, it really does make their life hell. However, there's very little, uh, that's usually done about it unless it involves sex or plastic surgery. That is my perception. Um, and you know what? If somebody from the college wants to call and take issue with that, we've been trying to get you on the air, but actually the college, itself had a lot of concerns about this move. I I've got to get to the phones because they're totally backed up. So let's start with John in Peterborough. Hi John. Hi, how are you? Good morning. Good good afternoon. Yes,
4: good afternoon, you're right. Um I'm not in favor of this privatization at all. Now, I had a very dear friend years ago, a doctor. And one day when something happened to somebody in the town I said, how can this happen? And he just said to me, I said, the guy has a license. He says, does everyone in your game have a license? Are they good? Does that mean they're good? I said, well, no. He says, then why do you think a doctor is good just because he has a license? That's one thing. Now, as one of the speakers there just said, and he is absolutely correct, and it goes for everything. When you start privatizing things, then you say, they self-govern, please. Please, they're all buddies. No, that's out of the question and you you again, I heard you say about these uh the nursing homes. do you think that they actually get the very best in the biggest pain? Uh, I can show you instances of J-
1: not John, John, I'm looking at uh, what you told our producer, so you had your cataracts done,
4: yes, I did in
1: and a hospital by, or a clinic
4: but in the in the hospital and. Absolutely brilliant. And everyone that goes to this man in Peterborough, they're always pleased. I don't know anyone that's ever had complaints about him.
2: And the same for my local doctor. Well, how, right. long, how long did he have to wait?
1: How long did you have to wait?
4: Um, let me just see. Maybe, let me see now. I, I, it's a while ago, I go back for I go back and get checked every year.
1: Okay, how so long, long did you maybe,
4: wait? Maybe a couple of months. But I know what you're getting at, that if you pay. Yeah, if you pay, well, you remember people paying and going down the states. So they jumped the queue sort of deal. Well, I can tell you, I went to a funeral of one of them. Okay. So I don't buy this stuff at all. We have been doing very well. There's not very much we have in this country as regards to health. But oh, okay. it's much better than at most places. So bear that in mind.
1: Okay, John, thanks for that. Let's go to Jim in Lindsay. Hi, Jim. How are you doing this afternoon?
5: Fine. How are you? Oh, coasting, as they say. Uh, Yeah, I want to talk, well, I was going to talk about Ford's knee replacement and hip replacement. Uh, I don't know if he realizes in his group of people that after you have a knee replacement, you're in the hospital for a couple of days because you go and get exercise and get to uh, use your legs and everything afterwards, right? Now, does a private clinic have those facilities that they can keep you for three or four days and get you moving again? That's number one. Number two, cataracts. I've had cataract replacements uh, are done, and uh, the optometrist, uh, he wanted to send me to, say, a private clinic, and it was a year's waiting time. And I lived in Willowdale, and I said to him, I said, well, there's a guy he's excellent up in Newmarket, make an appointment for there. Well, I guess he didn't know the geographics of the territory. He says, "Well, that's pretty far away." Well, living at uh, you know Finch Avenue, it's pretty fast getting up to Aurora. I went up there within three weeks and had the cataracts done up in Newmarket.
1: And uh, under Ohip? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, that's yeah, a very do. good point. So all of these wait times, and and thank you very much for your call, Jim. All of these wait times, they're really spotty, and. Uh, again, there are issues in terms of surgery. There are big issues just by merging lists of surgeons that if you need something, if you go to the first available surgeon instead of the one that your friend said is the best guy uh you probably get in sooner and and he makes a, a very good point about uh uh the you know the uh recovery. I don't know now how long people stay in the hospital the The thing I did find scary. At Doug Ford, I'm talking to you. When Doug Ford calls these procedures no brainers, I find that scary because they are, you know, they're routine. They're not new brain no brainers. And I know people who've had new leases on life after their joint replacements. And I know people who have gone through hell.
2: They're very invasive surgeries, and the secret to their success, I believe, is the follow-up with physiotherapy and care afterwards.
1: But it's not not just that. that People are different. I know people who've done everything and, again, gone through horrible, horrible... uh, situations where they're really sorry they ever did it in the first place.
3: And the time spent in hospital seems to vary too. There are yeah. people who who uh, come out almost immediately and there are those who keep for a, a number of days depending on their condition and the and the sur- survey. So it's a good very good question, what happens to those people when they go to a, a private clinic who have to stay more than uh, have more than day surgery?
1: Okay. Well, it, you know, the, it, I think the answer may probably end up being it will be day surgery. And there are more and more things everywhere, including the hospital that become day surgery, yeah. which is, it, not necessarily that bad because I don't think hospital is a great place for people who are sick.
3: As long as, long as the home care is available uh, for them to follow up. And that's another area where we're really lacking in this province is adequate home care. So that might not be uh, a safe solution for a lot of people who are getting the the uh, the operations.
1: Okay. Sita uh, has a story to tell us. Hi, Sita. Hi. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Libby. It is a great way to reduce waiting
6: time since we don't have to pay out of pocket for certain surgery. My husband would have to wait two years to get his cataract surgery. So he went to the hospital, he would have to wait for that, but went to a private clinic and we paid. And his surgery is already done within months. So they are great service. And you have the TLC and they're in Oakville.
1: Uh, Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. This already happens. It is already happening. So why not reduce the waiting time and the
6: pressure on the hospital? And they are not going to be taking away doctors and nurses because they're already fully staffed.
1: Well, it depends. If they're doing a lot more, they they may. This is just the first tier. And actually, to, to be perfectly honest, this is not necessarily the one that I personally would be worried about. But some of the others I uh, would definitely be worried about when they start uh, moving along to orthopedic surgeries, which is not really a no-brainer.
2: Not a no-brainer. Uh, I have a family member who is an orthopedic surgeon and specializes in the foot. Oh, and, good for you. And he, But he had to close his practice shortly after opening it because he had three years of patients booked ahead. <clears throat> excuse me and a limited number of surgical opportunities so he had his schedule set for three years couldn't take any more patients because of the limits in in surgeries so if this plan that the premier has would allow him more access to more patients uh, through a private operation or private operating room that might be an opportunity for him to do more of what he wants to do as a trained foot surgeon
3: the, the, the problem what we what we don't know that the caller was quite quite right if we have more surgeries being done on this basis and that should uh, decrease the waiting time for the other people who are going through the existing uh, process but we don't know that because we don't know how the how the allocation of the the time in the services is going to work out will it just be included in the number already or will it really take people off the off the waiting list and let more people be be Involved. That's the kind of detail that we, we don't understand yet.
1: Well, yeah, uh, there's a lot we don't understand. Uh, there are issues with the oversight that we don't understand. And and again, I would really like to know how much of this is already being done that way, because I suspect that in Toronto, it's, it's a big, big chunk of it. And that's why we don't see any of this in, in Toronto, any of this extra.
2: Endoscopies... Uh colonoscopies, uh, lots of smaller clinics doing s- several things that could be done in, in surgical theaters in hospitals are, are happening right now in Ontario in private clinics. And this will be an expansion of those services.
1: Okay. Um, let's see who is next. John in Beaverton. Hi, John. Hi. Yeah, I know a fellow that had it done in a private clinic. He
7: paid over 5000 Okay, yeah. And I know a, a lady, she's had one done, she's paid three, and
4: now she's working to get the other three to get the other one done, that private clinic. Well, I wonder so if. How come someone's charging?
1: Well, because it's in a private, if you're going to the private clinic and not through the OHIP funded wait list, you're going to pay.
2: I wonder if OHIP is covering the basic costs of that procedure and the, those. Additional costs are for those improved lenses or, or other charges that they, they can charge over and above OHIP. I'm not sure that they would be bypassing the OHIP system entirely.
1: Uh, good question. I don't know either. Thanks for your call. Um, and Carolyn Hamilton. Hi, Carol. Hi, Libby. How are you? I'm fine. Go ahead. You're on the air. I've recently had two surgeries, I'm 77.
8: And three years ago, I had both cataracts done in St. Joseph's in Burlington,
0: mm-hmm.
8: and it there was no problem. It was such a breeze. The only thing with payment, I know that you had a choice to upgrade your lens, right? Okay. And did you do that or not? I didn't.
1: Okay. And are you seeing fine? No. <laughs> no. I kind of wish I had of
8: but am I seeing fine? I, I see fine, but my distance isn't good. I'm going to the ophthalmologist uh, in a week or so, but I wish I had upgraded, but I didn't. And the other thing was the knee replacement. I had one leg done first time in November, and I went in St. Did I say St. Joseph the first time? Yep. That was Joseph Brent. Okay. I went into St. Joseph's in Hamilton uh, for 8 o'clock surgery. I was in the recovery room at 9.30. I was in my room at 11. The physiotherapy came in by 1 to get me out of bed. And I went home at 3, and I have not had a problem with my legs.
1: That's great. Congrats. I, I'm just
8: saying, you don't have to stay over. But to tell you the truth, when I saw the surgeon, and I've been having problem with this leg for five years, when I said I would finally made up my mind I wanted to have a knee replacement, he said, do you want to stay over? And I said, yeah, that would be good. I'd stay over. And he said, well, if you stay over, it's going to take another year to get you in. So that was what I
1: was told. And, um, well, it sounds like you had the very best of all outcomes. Thanks for your call. I'm looking at the clock. We're out of time. So, uh, what would you like to leave us with Bill?
3: Well, let's, uh, let's watch for more, uh, more information, and let's not confuse uh, the discussion of private health care with uh, government-paid health care in private, uh, in private uh, clinics, which may or may not be a, be a good idea. It has nothing to do with privatization. It has to do with what the quality of care uh, is, is being received by the patient's.
2: And I think uh, the, the Premier said he wants to take the best ideas from across country and across the world. I think that's the right direction for us to go, bring the best ideas to Ontario, but make sure that people have it delivered through their OHIP card.
1: Okay. Well, that's all the time we have for this segment. We're going to continue the conversation after the break. And we're going to talk to a couple of people from inside the healthcare system about why they are very concerned about this. And people, uh, we could not get to all of your calls. So of course, Free For All Friday is coming up, but I'm pretty sure we'll be talking about this before then. So uh, let's take that break and get on to the people from inside
0: the system. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio, heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As
1: we've been discussing, there are some very serious objections to the Ford plan, notably around the issue of staffing and upselling. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Doris Greenspoon, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, and Dr. Andrew Buzari, a primary care physician and the Executive Director of Population Health and Social Medicine at the University Health Network. Thank you both for joining us.
7: Thank you, Libby, for having us. Appreciate
1: it. Uh, So let's begin with Doris. And Dr. Greenspoon, one of the key objections around this is uh, the ability to uh, staff with nurses. So tell us a bit about that. Are you concerned?
7: We are hugely concerned. We are concerned about uh, the fact that for-profit delivery always has ended up in In longer wait times, not better situation for Ontarians, where is the premier and the minister going to find the nurses, or are they not going to put nurses even in these for-profit clinics? Uh, That's a possibility, too. And then the safety of the patients uh, will be at risk. They also spoke about taking the easy patients, the non-complex patients, meaning the hospitals, We'll have more and more complex patients when we don't have the staff even to attend to them now.
1: Uh, Dr. Buzari, in terms of cataract surgery, you know, I, I've been trying to find out how much of this already happens in private clinics. And just uh, in terms of people I know, I, I in Toronto, I think most of them are done in private clinics. Am I wrong?
9: Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely in terms of, I think it's important to, to delineate between the, the private and the for-profit and non-profit. It's, it's definitely clear that there is currently, it is not untrue that there are private independent health facilities and cataract clinics, uh, but I do think it's important to look at the Auditor General's own report on these private and for-profit uh, cataract surgery uh, clinics and facilities actually uh, having practices of upselling and different costs that have been costing uh, the Ontario government and essentially the public dollar. So definitely they're they're currently in place. Uh, The decision, though, to expand and double down on sort of a for-profit delivery model, as Dr. Grinsman has mentioned, uh, again, I think the evidence on this is really wanting.
7: Mm -hmm. Uh, And Liv, if I may add, the Premier today... They're brilliant on communications, let me say this. He was not after the the cataract surgeries. What he did in this press conference today, he already normalized the idea of hip and knee replacements. That's unconscionable. He also went for the cataract clinic on a not-for-profit clinic without saying it until one reporter pointed it out. So they are brilliant communicators, but the public is being cheated on all of the above.
1: How is it, uh, you're saying that having these uh, clinics ends up, people end up with longer wait times. How so? Can uh, either of you explain that? Uh, If I I may,
7: uh, that's proven in all the health systems in the world. The premier uh, already said it, the simple stuff, non-complicated, will go to the for-profit, and yes, I will say they will double on for-profits, not on not-for-profits, because first of all, I debated a doctor on Friday, a doctor that left already in Nova Scotia, an ICU, to actually move to open for-profit clinics in Nova Scotia and in Quebec, likely talking with the premier's office already here. Uh, You have staff. Doctors and nurses that will move to these for-profit clinics. Doctors because it's the few that want to make really money rather than, you know, uh, serving the public sector. And nurses because, um, basically they will have the simple, uh, cases. They will have, uh, no, no weekends or, or they will have no night shifts. They, they, who knows? They may be, uh, paid more uh, bottom line, doctors and nurses don't grow on trees, living, and this will damage the public sector in a huge way. It also takes the voice of the people with money and with power. It takes it to get ahead of the line in the private for-profit sector because, yes, they will need to pay extras, No doubt about that.
1: Mm. Um, in the, the, the government said uh, that this is kind of an application process. So I'm assuming that in the three cities where they're doing this, there are, are not already these clinics. So they said it's an application process and the clinics that apply will have to show how and where they're getting their staff. Does that give you any comfort, Dr. Buzari? Yeah, I, you
9: know, I, I think just following on on you know, the question in terms of the wait times as well, I think if you look at some of the other jurisdictions that have gone down the path of uh, for-profit uh, mechanisms to try to address wait times, we've seen an experience in Saskatchewan uh, where they looked to expand access to MRIs through private for-profit options. Similarly, in terms of expanding these sort of clinics, the actual experience and the evaluations show that it actually did not see an increase in weight, a decrease in wait times, excuse me, but at best, maybe a flatlining. And I think as Dr. Greenspan has spoke to, you know, it's really, again, about a lot of the dynamics in terms of both staffing, but also what in the health economics literature is seen as adverse selection, or what we commonly refer to as cream skimming. So we're not actually addressing some of the more complex issues or cases that need more attention and resource uh, what's happening is for-profit entities are able to address lower complexity or lower acuity issues, uh, again, with their, in terms of the the motivation, again, of also ensuring that there is a, a profit margin uh, that will come at cost of the public payer, but not necessarily trying to address the surgical backlogs and issues that everyone on the line right now is feeling. I mean, I think it's really important, Libby, to point out that we're not trying to defend the status quo. We're sort of saying, you know, we, we can't see reform. We don't want to see innovation. We don't want to see different partnerships. All of that needs to take place. And we can't keep telling people, our patients and families and caregivers uh, and health workers in the system that, you know, keep the system as it is. That that's That's a false dichotomy. What we are talking about is if you're looking at the actualist aspect of wait times, we know there are things that we can do right now in terms of Uh, better aligning and incentivizing the system around uh, the actual referral process, centralizing that, ensuring that people and surgeons who are available in publicly funded uh, settings to be able to get more access to the operating rooms or get more access to patients who need more urgent surgeries. Uh, And we also know if we are really serious about addressing the emergency department backlog, it's going to require more investments in the emergency department's more investments in nursing staff and recruitment and retention, and also in primary care in settings and areas where we know right now, you know, sitting in downtown Toronto, uh, we know that it it is not equal in terms of people's access to primary care, why they end up in the emergency department. If you're in Scarborough, the probability of you having access to a multidisciplinary family health team uh, is incredibly low. The variation is very, very high. And I think these are the areas that we need to see investment if we're really serious about backlogs, and some of the other health outcomes uh, that are really important.
7: And, and to add to that, Libby, because those are outstanding points that my colleague is making, is the issues that you, if the premier truly wanted to fix the system with the minister, open the operating rooms 24 by 7, bring more nurses, let allow surgeons to do more surgeries rather than capping them, and keep it on the public system, the infrastructure is there, and let's get on with it. Same with diagnostics, 24 by 7. RNO has been saying it for ages. A primary Wait a minute. Care, they they primary already care are. They have been sitting for over a year with full proposals for nurse practitioner-led clinics. Two years sitting on them. Allow them to practice. The doctors want them to practice. The doctors want to work with them. Let's get
1: on with it. They, they already, by the way, a lot of places do have 24-7 diagnostics. For That's sure.
7: correct, but ours are, not, are, are 24-7 only for urgent things, and we could do them for everything, and we could move a lot faster. We just need the resources in terms of human resources, nurses, doctors, te- technologies, etc. cetera, uh, because the infrastructure is already there.
1: Okay. I'm looking at the clock. It's time to wrap things up. Uh, So, Dr. Buzari, where does this leave us? Uh, Do you think there's any room for any kind of modification of this plan and the plans going forward?
9: Yeah, again, I mean, I I don't have any inside information or knowledge in terms of what the likelihood is of any, any change of this. I think that what's really important, however, is that if this is the direction that the government is willing to go, that there is you know, a a real engagement with uh, both the CPSO, with public hospitals, in terms of the quality provisions and protections that need to be in place, and also ensuring that we are in line uh, with the Canada Health Act, as we've seen uh, creep from uh, other provinces on this issue. So I think those are really important aspects. Uh, I think that if we don't ensure that those provisions are in place, uh, again, when you look at the litany of evidence, It is a worsening health outcomes and actually not the cost savings uh, that have been um, purported elsewhere. So I think those are pieces where I think there needs to continue to be that kind of uh, push and that hopeful partnership and collaboration with uh, the actual quality provisions that need to be in place. And And of course, the premier spoke, um,
7: the media didn't go after it, but the, the premier spoke about legislation coming in February. That is next month legislation such as allowing this, this um, expansion of for-profit care, number one, needs to prohibit prohibit charging extras. It needs to prohibit overnight because that's against the Canada Health Act, and it needs to have full, full public dialogue and organizational dialogue, not just calling the evening before Let me tell you, is that what the Premier meant by let's get it done? Well, no one gave him the mandate because no one knew what he was after.
1: Hmm. Okay. I am sure that we will be talking about this uh, in the future pretty often. Thank you so much, Dr. Doris Greenspoon and Dr. Andrew Buzari. Thank you.
9: Much appreciated.
1: Okay. We're taking another break. When we come back... uh, the transport minister testified at a parliamentary committee last week and he said uh, what happened in our airports and the travel chaos over the holidays was unacceptable. Um, what do you think of what he said? He also assured us that he's on it. What do you think? We will talk to the conservative transport critic when we return.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight back with Libby Zneimer on Zuma Radio. Welcome back. Last week, we heard
1: from Transport Minister Omar Al-Ghabra at the emergency session of the Parliamentary Committee on Transport. He called the holiday chaos unacceptable and insisted that he is on the case. So, although he didn't pick up the phone to try to talk to any of the airline CEOs until January, he also insists he's not soft on the airlines. Well, the opposition sees it differently what do you think? Numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free one 866 740 And now let's bring in Melissa Lansman, Conservative MP and uh, the party's transport critic. Hello, Melissa. Hey, how are you? Good, Fine. To be back. Good to have you on. So what did you make of that appearance and uh, the prospect of the transport minister doing anything?
6: Well, I mean, unfortunately, we saw we've seen this show before, and we saw it in the summer with uh, a very chaotic travel season that uh, that made you know Toronto and Montreal's airports uh, renowned for being the worst in the world. And unfortunately, uh, I think we might see some version of this come the next travel season which in this country is uh uh is the school break in uh, in March so we're 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 not confident that the minister did everything he can and we're further not confident that he's doing everything he can to put consumers first.
1: Well, we had these new rules uh, on uh, passenger rights bill come into effect in September. And uh, according to advocates and also people who've tried to collect, you could drive a truck through it. And, you know, uh, I think I heard the minister say that they're going to beef it up, but uh, I'm not sure.
6: Well, I I think, you know, one one of the things that he could do is, you know, tear up that document and start all over again. Because if you've ever tried... Uh, as a passenger to get what you're owed because an airline canceled you or left you stranded sleeping on an airport floor or shuffled you from lobby to lobby, then uh, you know that there's an 18,000-person backlog, or, or sorry, a 30,000-person 30, backlog, which uh, which takes you about 18 months to uh, to even get your claim heard, and uh, uh, and the passenger rights protections that we have in this country don't actually protect passengers. They're as good as the piece of paper they're written on. And unfortunately, that's just not good enough.
1: Well, that whole process is you have to deal with the uh, National Transportation Safety Board first. uh, And, you know, they don't have enough staff to deal with this. I'm not sure hiring more civil servants is a solution. So what is a possible solution to this, assuming there's political... Will, which I'd say is a pretty big assumption.
6: Yeah, well, I think there's political will, and I think there's the will of uh, passengers to see uh, to see that through. Look, I, at the at the end of the day, these rules are really complicated, and the reason that we need the Canadian Transport Agency to adjudicate all of that is because they're not clear to anyone. And if you put the airlines on the hook, and if you if you ask airports to actually run uh, an organization uh, uh, that allows them to you know take off and land on time, if you actually put more staff in the system, allowed pilots to get their uh, their medical testing, and 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 hired more pilots from uh, from around the uh, the country, then perhaps these rules would work. And at the end of the day, this is really about the consumer. And what they saw last week from the minister is too bad. Your problem. Uh,
1: here's. Another thing that really struck me, Melissa, and that is, so there's this emergency meeting and the, the CEO, the guy in charge of Sunwing showed up, but the rest of the airlines, which have had millions in bailouts, I mean, they sent their, uh, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't say underlings, they sent other people and, and, you know, looking at this, I'm thinking, They've always kind of done whatever they want they're too big to fail or or whatever and and they have so little respect for the political process that they don't even bother showing up and By the way, we've seen the same thing with the grocery yeah
6: look we, we we've seen we've seen much of that, and there's a good argument in this country that we're not well served we're you know we're one of the biggest land masses it's really expensive to go anywhere and right now a a passenger who flies? A Canadian passenger who flies on British Airways to the UK is better protected than a Canadian who flies on our own WestJet to the UK, and that shouldn't be a uh, okay. So there's a there's a good argument that we should allow more competition into uh, into the market. That means more uh, you know more routes, more airlines. Open this thing up and allow you know allow the market to do what the market does uh, and provide better service and better accountability to the people who have saved for years to go on that vacation, especially after two years or three years of not doing it.
1: And we've also seen some some pretty uh, awful, almost disastrous uh, situations with some of those really discount airlines in the States. Uh, but what about uh, addressing, uh, again, this Lack of respect. There there just doesn't seem to be accountability. And on, on the side of the airports, I mean, the, the head of the Toronto Airport Authority but, makes a fortune and you don't see her even, you know, deigning to communicate uh, very often, like maybe once or twice.
6: Yeah, look, I, I think this is, this emergency meeting calls, frankly, on behalf of every consumer in this country, whether you are stuck in an airport or Christmas or whether you're, a, you know, you're going to fly. At some point, there's lots of Canadians that use, uh, that use our airlines, that use our airports. Uh, and we're doing this to raise awareness on this, that the finger pointing that happens between the airports, between the airlines, to the minister, from the minister to, to all of them, just doesn't serve consumers. So there's a few things that we can do right away. One of those things is passenger protections. The other thing is putting the airlines on the hook right away to rebook, to uh, uh, to give back uh, the, the the money that you spent on the ticket. And the other one is uh, uh, is, is is looking at our airports model, which doesn't again doesn't serve Canadians uh, in a way where they would be served, let's say, in the UK or frankly in America.
1: Hmm. I mean, the UK had its, its, uh, problems as well. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the situation is, is ridiculous. And even there's one thing, and this was not at a highly chaotic time. So for instance, if an airline, if Air Canada cancels a flight and people are stuck in the airport, there, there's not even a single person from Air Canada there to rebook them. So even if there'd be a huge line, people there might see that there's somebody trying to help them, but no, they don't do that at all. Instead, you, if you're stuck in the airport, you don't know how you're getting home, you have to call and wait on the line for two hours at least until yeah, that, somebody, I mean, you know, what is and that? that problem? And that problem becomes even
6: worse when you're you know, you're in a foreign country. You've got to go. You know, maybe back to work. Maybe you've got something to get back that's, uh, uh, for that's that's important. And then you're stuck in a in a country where maybe you don't speak the, the language, and you can't get anybody on the phone. And we've had labor issues. And I'm the first to admit that you know the weather's not always uh, on our side in in Canada. But we've we've dealt with that. And I've lived here my entire life, and we've had worse winters uh, than this. So. You know, talking about uh, a bad weather season is no excuse to not have things functioning in a G7 country as
1: rich as ours. Right, and in terms of the communication piece, does does there have to be some kind of legislation or something? There absolutely has to be some
6: tightened legislation, and that has a lot to do with the passenger protections that the ministers that the minister actually patted himself on the back for that failed to protect passengers. We've got to make those stronger. We've got to put airlines, airports, all of those authorities uh, on the hook. Because at the end of the day, the only person who lost out, if you watch that committee meeting or if you heard from the minister in the last uh, in the last couple of weeks, which was 18 days after we learned about all of this, uh, you know that consumers are not well served
1: in this country. And we're going to fight to make sure that they're at the center of any decision making that happens. And it, it, we no longer have a consumer ministry. Would that be helpful or would just that just increase bureaucracy?
6: Look, I think I think at the end of the day we can solve this with uh with the review uh not just on regulation but on actual legislation uh to make sure that uh, passengers are protected. Europe has the gold standard uh on 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 passenger protection. If you get cancelled, you're rebooked. If you uh, and that's 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 on anything that is within the control of the airlines. And I'm sure that many of the listeners listening would have would have seen uh, maybe a delayed flight, and it says mechanical issues. Well, there are hundreds of flights a day outside of Pearson, and I've never seen as many mechanical issues in the last year. Uh, as I've seen, as an excuse for you know for why flights are delayed, if there's that many mechanical issues, then we should really be asking ourselves questions about safety, which I don't think is the case. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I remember I was delayed on a flight fairly recently, and and uh, the, the it, they said that they did not have crew to uh, tow the plane from the hangar to the gate.
6: Well, that's within the airline's control, right? So if you don't have crew and if you don't have enough people, then the airline shouldn't be selling tickets as if they were at 100% operations. If you know that you don't have enough people to run this thing smoothly, if the airport knows that it doesn't have enough people to run this thing smoothly, then we shouldn't get into a contract with consumers where you assume that when you buy a ticket, you're actually going to go somewhere. There is a responsibility on the other end uh, as well to make sure that the circumstance that we're in, which is, you know, a, a reality of, of a post-COVID uh, environment, that they're actually selling tickets in conjunction with what they can deliver. Otherwise, they're just selling you something fake,
1: and that's not what you signed up for. And then there's no recourse for you to get what you're owed. Okay, uh, we've got to wrap things up. Uh, Melissa Lanceman, please keep us updated on this. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Okay, that is all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.